and welcome back to the pod and the pendulum so this is normally the part of the show where i say we're the show that covers all horror movie franchises one movie in one episode at a time however we are going to take a break for the next couple months from the formula uh we are going to do a couple one-off movies and then do some themed episodes to get us through the spooky season which i'm really thrilled to do So Lindsay is taking this week off in order to keep up with all her festival coverage. I think she's right in the middle of the uh, of TIFF, the Toronto International Film Fest. But she will be back for our next show. Um, I have to say, like, I cannot wait to do this episode because I am going to be talking about what is perhaps my favorite. It's definitely my favorite horror movie. It is probably my favorite movie of all time, period, full stop. We're going to be talking about John Landis's An American Werewolf in London. This is the story of two young American students traveling through England on a night of the full moon. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? Could be a lot of things. Fate let one live. A lunatic must have been a very fierce fellow. Wasn't a lunatic. What? A wolf. Oh, be serious, would you? And now everything is changing. 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 John Landis, the brilliant young director of Animal House and the Blues Brothers, has turned a classic tale of terror into something new. Something different. Excuse me. A naked American man stole my balloon. I'm a werewolf. not do this show by my lonesome like nobody wants to hear me talk for 90 minutes straight we would have zero listeners and i couldn't blame him so we have brought out a couple pairs of big guns today we have two fantastic guests welcome up first to the show the co-host of the kill by kill podcast who's writing has also appeared for the site the spool gina radcliffe welcome to the show how are we i'm great thank you for having me Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm really thrilled to have you on. We have another guest as well. We have coming on, I believe this person joined us for our IT uh, screen reading when we did that way back when. Uh, Their work, her work has appeared for sites such as FilmCred, 
Daily Grindhouse, Nightmarish Conjurings, and Ghouls Magazine, among others. Jessica Scott, come on down and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Thrilled to have you both on. I am absolutely thrilled to have both of you on. Um, Before we dig into the movie itself, I always like to hear the context of, and I'll, I'll let listeners in on a little secret of mine. If you ever see me post something on the Pod and Pendulum Twitter account, like, hey, just out of curiosity, who is a fan of such and such a movie? That is my way of kind of like throwing out a fishing line for possible guests, as opposed to saying, like, I need a guest for this show. Because this way I feel like I can pull from a wider pool, but also not hurt any feelings. Um, So both of you had answered the clarion call when I threw that out. Um, So I want to know, like, what was your kind of first experience with this movie? And or like, what does it mean to you now? And like, Gina, would you like to start? Yeah, uh, this too is probably my my favorite horror movie. Um, I recall when it came out, uh, I was maybe about nine years old mm-hmm. um and i had heard about it through my parents who went to the movies a lot and and often they would take me with them whether the movie was appropriate for my <laughs> age or not but for some reason this one they didn't take me to uh, i think they decided to treat it like a date night or whatever mm-hmm. but uh they were talking about it and talk about the transformation scenes and i was just like i need to see this movie uh, I had already started developing a little bit of an interest in horror because a couple years earlier I had watched Salem's Lot, the TV movie. Um, and even though it scared the hell out of me because I was a little mm-hmm. kid, I was also really, really fascinated by it too. Um, so I probably waited until this came out on cable and I watched it. And at that point I was 100% sold on, on horror as a genre. I, I, be, that was the movie that turned me into a, a horror person. Um, and I probably have seen it well over a dozen times at mm-hmm. this point. I got to see it. I finally got to see it on a big screen, maybe three or four years ago. It was, um, uh, the Alamo in my city was doing, uh, for some reason, on the 4th of July, which I, I, I don't know what the significance wow. of that is, but but they had a, a 4th of July screening, and I had I went after going to a barbecue. I was sunburned and uncomfortable, but I, it was wonderful. I was so delighted to be able to finally see it in that format. Oh, that's a, a fun way to see it. Absolutely. A thrilling way to see it. Oh, here's my question. How much would you say that, like, the way it blends comedy and horror which often like the parts of the parts of the setup for comedy is often very similar to like how you set up a scare in horror like they tickle a lot of the same things how much do you think that blend maybe contributed to you saying like now i am a horror person like absolutely on board fully well it was just such a a, a you know an interesting i'm actually afraid of roller coasters in real mm-hmm. life i very rarely you know, have ever ridden on one uh but i do enjoy that sense of i don't know how i'm going to feel from scene to scene mm-hmm. like it's you know it's funny and then it's scary and then it's tragic and then it's back to being funny again and then it's scary and then it's romantic and now it's tragic again uh and then it then it's funny again and it's just it's so like it, it's a very hard thing to maintain i i think that 
one of the other few directors that can get that tone right is maybe Edgar Wright. Mm-hmm. Although his movies, to me at least, now I mean I haven't seen Last Night in Soho yet, which seems to be more straightforward horror than his than his last movies. I wouldn't say they were scary, but they have certainly have horror elements to it. Mm-hmm. I would still classify them as horror comedies. But this one manages such a you know to walk such a good line between genuinely scary and genuinely funny that it's just it's a really rare thing. Yeah, it, and it doesn't like a lot of times with horror comedy horror comedies to a certain degree poke fun at horror movies like the comedy comes from the horrific situation itself or i think this movie the comedy is just the comedy right and they it exists separate from like the horror itself which is interesting and definitely it's not the first horror comedy but i think it's one of the first to maybe tackle it in this sort of way right jessica how about yourself um, the first time I saw this movie, I was either a tween or a young teenager, um, probably rented it or caught it on cable somewhere. Um, I was already a horror fan. And, you know, this one was high on my you know watch list because werewolves are my favorite movie monsters. I've always loved werewolves mm-hmm. the most. Um, but also, I didn't realize it until you just asked the question now. But this was probably... Um, something that I sought out because of the thriller video. <laughs> that was my, mm. my first experience with John Landis, um, you know, being obsessed with that combination of, you know, not just, you know, the dance and the music, but the humor. And there was, there were camp elements, but it was also creepy and seeing horror in a music video and kind of being intrigued. Cause that was one of my earliest experiences with like a monster movie was the thriller video. Um, yeah. So seeing his name in the credits and seeing that blend of comedy and horror in a context I wasn't expecting it was really intriguing to me. So I think that's another reason that I kind of sought this out earlier than a lot of other movies. This might have been the first proper werewolf movie I ever saw. Um, And I've just been obsessed with werewolves ever since. I, you know, like you said, I loved that combination of humor and horror where it's, it's not poking fun at the genre. It's just funny. And I'm always fascinated with people who can combine tones like that and not have it feel jarring or out of place. Like everything feels Mm -hmm. organic, even though there's a wide range of emotion going on and it's kind of careening occasionally from horror high to humor high, but not in a, not in a way that feels like it doesn't make any sense. It all works. Um, and yeah, so this was, I think this was kind of what started my love affair with werewolves Mm -hmm. that, you know, that transformation scene and just all the different ways that you can tell a werewolf story. Cause it starts out this very classic Gothic on the moors with the fog rolling in, but then we're in, you know, a very dense urban setting in London. You know, I, I loved the. The diff- all the different stories you can tell even within the same movie so right. i was just i was just kind of obsessed with all the different elements going on it's just there's so much happening in one movie and all of it's great and yeah and to your point and we'll talk about it when we kind of dive into the movie like there is a good 30 to 40 minute stretch of this movie where it kind of sort of stops being a horror movie and becomes more of like a psychological drama Mm -hmm. if if nothing else so we'll definitely talk about the way this kind of flirts between different genres um i know for me like i know there are certain movies i can tell you how old i was who was with me 
when the first time I saw the movie was because it was that imprinted in my brain. Mm -hmm. I will not lie. I do not remember the first time I saw this movie. Um, I can tell you that I would see clips of it on television and you would see clips of it on different like best horror things. Like I was really familiar with all the key moments of it, if not necessarily uh, the key elements of the plot. It might not have been until maybe my 20s until I actually saw this movie. Like I feel like it's one that I saw relatively late in being a horror fan, Um, but I immediately fell in love with it. Um, And I can say that like it quit. I will say that like nurse price might be (laughs) the reason I am married to a British woman. (laughs) I can tell you that in 2004, I, you know, uh, met my wife online. Like we were on a dating site and we met, you know, hadn't spoken, met at a bar in Boston. And when I greeted her, she was like, you know, she has the British accent. And my immediate thought was like, if I play my cards right, I could be fooling around with like Nurse Price from American Werewolf in London. Like, this can be, I have never spoken less often on a date. I would just throw a question out and then listen. Um, and, they just, and they just close your eyes and swoon. You know, you know basically. I'm like, don't my, the whole, like, don't blow it. Don't blow it. Blue moon um, playing in your head the whole time. But, and I'll say that like John Landis might be the reason I'm married to her as well. Um, a few weeks uh, before we had met, um, like a, probably a month or two before, like I was living in like a punk house with nine other people and we would always have movie nights. I had a projector and a nice screen and we just had people over and we were watching Animal House one night and it was like mid-April. And I just look at my roommates. I'm like, why don't we throw a toga party on the 4th of July? And they're like, that is a brilliant idea. Let's do it. Um, so a couple weeks after dating my wife, you know, she hadn't really met my friends yet. And I'm like, look, why, you know, we're throwing this huge barbecue in the 4th of July. Do you want to come? And she's like, sure, that'll be great. I'm like, awesome. Uh, do you have a toga? <laughs> what? I'm like, we're throwing like an Animal House inspired toga party. And, you know, she gutted it out came and like it was just as i the thing i two things i remember most from that day is number one having to physically like bodily remove a punk rock kid from our yard because he was throwing fireworks into the neighbor's pool next door where kids swim and i'm like nope like i'm a punk but i'm not that you know we're not gonna ruin our neighbor's good time here and then also being like super sloppy drunk stumbling home with her during the fireworks in Boston and then just grabbing like a chocolate banana pie on the windowsill and eating that in bed with her. Um, (laughs) And, you know, my thought is like, you cannot have that, you know, your, your, your partner meeting your friends for the first time in a toga and just being a total champ about it. At that point, you're like, all right, this is marriage material Mm. at this point. This one's going to stick. And I told that story to John Landis at a Fangoria convention um, when he was like talking about American Werewolf in London. People were bringing all these homemade models and he was super gracious. He was like, these are beautiful. Where's my cut? Um, Like he was just like, this is so great. Look at all the detail. Where's my percentage on this? Like he wanted in on the action. Um, And I'm like, Mr. Landis, like, 
you're the reason I'm married to my wife. Like I brought my animal house DVD. I left it in the car and he looked at me. He's like, you schmuck. And it was just the best. It was the absolute worth like the eight hour drive to go to that. So um, it's the movie that for my 40th birthday, we rented a theater where I was booking horror movies at the time and had all of my friends join us for like the, our 40th birthday party. And we were supposed to do Rocky, but she brought the wrong uh, Rocky movie. She brought like Rocky five and realized like, we're not doing that for, <laughs> so we did American werewolf and my non horror movie friends like walked out midway. Like we love you, but we can't stomach this anymore. So, um, and I've probably, have seen this about 20 or 30 times. If I've seen it once, I've seen it that much. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, really getting attached to Nurse Price as mm-hmm. some sort of feminine ideal. I, you're not wrong. She's great. <laughs> but also I think what really makes it work is that this is the rare horror movie in which there is a, a romantic subplot mm-hmm. and it feels authentic. Yes. Like they, they, they have genuine chemistry. Oh yeah. Which is which is something that a lot of not even just hard movies, a lot of movies just tend to, you know, because it's it's used to uh, whether it's a casting issue or or you know, the actors didn't actually like each other and it it's it's hard to fake that kind of thing. Yeah. But they really seem like they're into each other and, and that makes a huge difference, you know, both in the romance and in the you know, you know, rather bummer ending. Yeah, the only horror movie I can think of lately, or the movie like the Conjuring movies with right, like, right, Patrick right. Wilson, they, and they feel like a real or, couple. Yeah. yeah, you know, usually it's just like I don't want this romance in my movies. Like, let's move along at this point. You know, it's not, uh, and we'll definitely talk about that relationship more. Um, couple things on the production before we get into the movie. Uh, Landis has talked about coming up with the idea uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, when he was a gopher on a movie called uh, Kelly's Heroes when he was 18. Uh, He was on location in Yugoslavia, or or then Yugoslavia, when he and his driver stumbled on a ritual where the local persons were burying a man in the middle of the road. And uh, when he asked the driver about it, the driver told him, like, hey, they're doing that. Because if he were to rise from the grave, he was a really bad person in real life. They're putting him in this spot so that he won't know where to go or won't be able to rise up. Like he was a criminal. Um, and Landis had this idea. He's like, geez, like a year ago, we put a man on the moon. And now I'm like half a world away. And I'm looking at this like kind of like medieval ritual. Like this is kind of nuts. And he started to think like, what would happen if they were right, like what if these people were right and this person did rise from the grave and that sparked the idea. He plugs away in the script and he starts when he's like 18, 19 years old. And meantime, he's telling Rick Baker about like, this is what I'm going to do. Like, you're the man to do this. Like one day we're going to make this movie together. Starts shopping the movie at the end of 1970 and he gets the same two comments. It's too funny to be scary. It's too scary to be funny over and over again no one quite gets it what do we make of that comment i guess i'll pause here for a sec i'd love to hear both of your takes on like a comment like that especially since you both write much more prolific prolifically than i do at this point (laughs) well i I agree with your point that the setup for humor or for horror and comedy is so similar there's the same kind of tension and the same kind of payoff um you know telling a joke sometimes is like a scare or a jump scare or something they're the same release of tension involved so they're so similar 
that I think, you know, people think of them as being opposite emotions, but to me, they're so, so close to being the same. Like it's, it's a release of tension, whether it's a scream or a laugh, it's the same setup and it kind of plays on the same emotions. It's on this element of expectation and playing with those expectations and subverting them or playing with timing in both cases. So I think that comment arises from a fundamental misunderstanding of comedy and horror, to be honest, because they're far more similar, I think, than most people give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say I would definitely agree with you that that they come from a similar place. Same. Yeah, I, I would point out that a lot of people, myself included, if they are startled by something, mm-hmm. the the you know the first reaction is to you know, let out a little yelp and then start laughing, because you know you feel immediately mm-hmm. silly mm-hmm. for you know why was I so scared you know why was you know, but because it all sort of that tension all sort of builds up from the same place. Um, my my co host and I'm the uh, same as Patrick. Like to uh, this Patrick, day, when I go to like a haunted attraction, like a haunted hayride so, or a haunted so house, so he is that person through, in the theater. When during, during I get scary scared, movie, I laugh my and it's, laugh, it's a different because, kind of laugh than I normally it's a, have. It's, like it's, a bad it's just movie like my like voice stupid, goes like two to three octaves lower than normal. It's just booming like John Goodman type of laugh. I can't help it, and it's the way I release that tension your brain <laughs> yes i am very afraid right now there may be there may be some pee involved i am very afraid and i just want my mom my sister is the best to go to these places too because she has a genuine full body freak out that like breaks the performers she's like oh my god and her whole body starts shaking and she just starts wailing and the people that are performing just usually crack up at that point it's like it's like it's like it's like like you can't scare me Um, i'm scared all right so he's trying to make get this movie like financing for the movie he hasn't made anything yet though like no one knows who landis is this is his run starting in the mid seventies. He makes uh, the he makes the comedy anthology Schlock, which isn't a big hit, but Johnny Carson loves it, and Johnny Carson has Landis on his show. And this isn't a, a point; it's kind of hard to remember this. There are like three big television stations, and tens of millions of people turn into Johnny Carson. He's like the king of late night, so he is kind of like. If there's an entertainment tastemaker, it's going to be Johnny Carson at this time. That leads to Landis making getting the funding to make Kentucky Fried Movie. It's a moderate size hit. Again, it's kind of like he gets called like if 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 um, if Monty Python were were that troupe was American, it might look a little like Kentucky Fried Movie. Goes from that to Animal House, which is just this massive cultural touchstone. And this smash hit, like made for a couple million bucks, pulls in almost 150 million. And it is like the comedy movie. 
follows that up with the Blues Brothers, which costs a lot of money to make uh, him. And I guess there's a friendly rivalry between him and Spielberg, who's making 19. I think he's making 1941 at the time. Like who can make the most expensive movie ever at that point? They wanted to see how much money they could blow. Um, but again, like the Blue, Blues Brothers, like it's massive. And these are comedies making a hundred million dollars in late seventies, early nineteen eighties dollars. Like that would be a billion. That's Marvel money at this point for comedies. You don't see that anymore. Um, at this point, he can do whatever he wants. Like if he's not Spielberg or George Lucas, he's something approximating it. And what it does, <laughs> what he does, is he finally gets to make an American Werewolf in London for like less than six million. It's considered a mild hit because it only does like 10 times of its budget back. Um, then he does trading uh, trading places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. Then he does Spies Like Us. Then he does Three Amigos. Then he does Coming to America. And in between that, like you said, Jessica, he directs the video for Thriller, only like the number one music video of all time. It is a run of movies that is almost unparalleled in cinema history. Unfortunately, we're leaving one movie out there that really it is. And I think the it's, I don't even think it's the reason why Landis doesn't get the due another director would get for having this kind of run. And it's because of the hubris he showed and the irresponsibility he showed on Twilight Zone, the movie, which leads to the death of Vic Moreau and two child actors during the hel- you know, uh, helicopter exploding and proper preca- precautions weren't taken. And he doesn't really pay any sort of price for it whatsoever. And that's that's it's the most tragic thing is three people lost their lives. But it's just it's horrible. Yeah, it, it uh, it's probably one of the most egregious examples of um, a mm-hmm. a famous person basically getting off for something that people like you and I would would probably, if not serve actual jail time, would spend the rest of our lives having to pay restitution for. And and you know, the, yeah. we should. You know, it, it is still it's remarkable that he just kind of you yeah. know walked away. It, it, it tarnished his reputation, but he mm-hmm. never. He never, uh, you know, saw any 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 legal ramifications from it. No, he gets off like pretty much scot free. Like I think he even thanks the jurors like once he's acquitted um, in a move that is you know probably not a great PR move. Um, I will say that like this is gonna how do I say this and not sound completely insensitive? It feels like the current backlash, like when you read backlash on john landis in 2021 a lot of it feels steeped in the idea that he's also the dad of max landis who is a really cretinous human being uh and someone that is you know should not get any sort of work in the entertainment field it feels like people acknowledge before like max landis was kind of known for being like a sexual predator Mm -hmm. people acknowledge like yeah john landis did this thing it was really awful now it's like Oh yeah, the um, shitty dad of this really shitty human being also did this. Does that make sense? Am I? Am I? And I, I could be completely incorrect in my assumption of this, but it didn't feel like it was the level of vitriol that he gets. It felt like it kind of crested 
as Max Landis exposed himself. Well, to it's a you know, it's a generational people. thing too. I mean, obviously, millennials and Zoomers mm-hmm. are they've only heard about the Twilight Zone thing, you know, whereas you know Gen mm-hmm. X, you know, re- you know, pretty well remembers it. Um, but also, mm-hmm. it, it's you know, on top of you know, I think we're just kind of tired as a as a society in general of of you know what they call you know you know, fail sons where you know they just you know they keep getting these opportunities mm-hmm. you, know, you know unwarranted i mean yeah i realize that max landis has has written a couple you know one or two movies that ended up being you know, pretty good hits uh the fact that i can't remember mm-hmm. what it's called doesn't you know maybe maybe says that you know, it, it's staying power isn't isn't that good but of course in in Hollywood, if you have one no. movie that makes a bunch of money, suddenly you're you're a hot property no matter what. And he keeps getting mm-hmm. – now, finally, it seems to be drying up. But there was a long period where he was just getting opportunity after opportunity after opportunity handed to him mm-hmm. with with without much to back it up other than, well, he's John Landis' son. Of course he's talented. I mean, is that how it no. works? Because, I mean – you know, I don't necessarily know that everybody you know who is the parent or the, the child of a you know a filmmaker is you know, by default also a talented filmmaker, but we just seem to make that right. assumption. And if, yeah, they, and like you said, they get multiple chances to prove people wrong, right? And I'm sure that he he will because you know everything you know, comes back around. Like now, you know, people like Louis C.K. are getting their their chance to go back mm-hmm. out on tour, and you know nobody stays canceled forever. So I, I'm sure that he will keep trying to make a comeback over and over and over again, and and, and somebody will be there to keep giving him money, and and it's yeah. just. You know, it, it is just tiring to hear about that. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that you bring up the generational uh, divide and how both of them are viewed. Because I'm, <laughs> to use a recent phrase, I'm a geriatric millennial. I'm close to, closer mm-hmm. to Gen X, but I'm a, a millennial. So I, you know, was a John Landis fan. And I heard people mention every now and then, oh, but the Twilight Zone movie. And I didn't know what they were talking about. And it wasn't until later that I found out what had happened and what Landis had done, you know, his um, negligence and um, his subsequent attitude, which I think played a big part in how he's perceived. Mm -hmm. Um, So that kind of made me feel a little guilty for being a Landis fan, you know? Um, And I think, you know, people my age and younger, when everything came out about Max Landis, they said, oh, well, of course, you've got generations of men in this family who victimize people and don't take responsibility for it, who, you know, don't care about anyone but themselves. You know, I think it's um, ascribing things to older people in the family that younger people say, oh, well, obviously, it's just a family of people like that. So I I do Mm -hmm. think it's interesting to bring in the generational um, element because a lot of people will probably know Max Landis more because he's been in the news more recently with, you know, all the horrible things that he's done. Um, and then people find out about John Landis and Twilight's on the movie and say, well, of course, there you go. So I, you know, it's just interesting when you hear about things in relation to when you've experienced these people's works, you know, I haven't seen a Max Landis film and frankly don't plan to, um, but right. I, I do think it's interesting when you find out about these things in comparison to when you experienced, you know, 
a classic John Landis movie or something and how that colors your perception of it. Because for me, and I agree with everything you just said there. And I I think for me, what I struggle with is like, this is a, a person who I would say is responsible for shaping my sense of humor that I can't, the number of times I saw trading places and three amigos and spies like us national lampoons uh animal house and blues brothers like my sense of humor is basically completely shaped by john landis and that's why i am and it's you know says more about me why i'm more forgiving i think of the you know i and not to disregard the twilight zone accident but why i'm just like but he's so talented you know and i don't know it's something I want to continue to struggle with. I don't want to talk about tragedy today. Um, I want to talk much just about this, but I just felt like it had to be raised uh, a little bit. I just want to say like, before we get into the movie itself, the last thing is like, by the time Landis is able to call Rick Baker and say, Hey, let's go make this movie. I've told you about for a decade. Baker's response is not like, fuck yeah, let's go do it. He's like, oh, um, I'm doing the howling. And yeah, a lot of the things that we talked about um, in terms of how we want the transformation to go, like I've been kind of sharing them with Joe Dante and and whatnot. And uh, bye. <laughs> and Landis is like, fuck off. Like you're doing my movie. You need to come. We've talked about this for a decade. And Baker decides, like, all right, I'll give this to my protege. This is kid, you know, he might be all right. Rob Botine, <laughs> maybe he can do, maybe he can do this. But we get two werewolf movies that, when people talk about what are the definitive werewolf movies, I would say that these are the two that people look at, right? I mean, there's the Wolfman from Universal, but I'd say even more than that movie, people look at the Joe Dante's The Howling and. Landis's American Werewolf in London is like the pinnacle. And not only are they classic werewolf movies, but they're both horror comedies as well. Right, right. I was going to point out that, that The Howling, if anything, is even more overtly funny mm-hmm. than, 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 than American Werewolf is. I, I just, and, and, you know, very, and very self-aware with the, with the casting of a lot of people mm-hmm. or, and references to old mm-hmm. horror movies. It's, it's very... You know, it, it's at least you know as much homage than anything else. Oh yeah, and it, it it has like a much more laser focused sense of humor because it's skewering like the self help psycho babble mm-hmm. um, trend of the late seventies, early eighties, like the I'm okay, you're okay, guru self help culture, and it's really laser focused in its humor on that and. You know, I think if not for this American Werewolf and if not for the really terrible sequels that follow The Howling, like we would say, and if someone comes to me and says The Howling is the greatest werewolf movie of all time, I won't agree with them, but I won't I won't argue the point like I might if someone were to say like um my best friend is a werewolf or teen, <laughs> if someone is like teen wolf 2 is the pinnacle of werewolf movies then we're gonna have some words at that point now to be fair american world from london also has a terrible sequel true is it a sequel or is it just using 
the you know similar she's supposed to the the girl in it is supposed to be the child of of david and nurse price okay it's so she's she's half werewolf but she's french does it make sense (laughs) no it doesn't but i i think that that is their pride their soul connection Mm -hmm. it's a soul connection to the original movie they had had to throw in something okay is that made it's been and i i will i'm embarrassed to say i did see that movie in theaters but I don't remember anything about it. Is that explicit in the movie or is it something that like screen rants 20 years later says 10 <laughs> things you don't know about. And they're... I, I think it is mentioned, okay. but, but it's not a, a huge plot point. Okay. All, all I really remember is that for some reason, like it really incorporated extreme mm-hmm. sports into it. Mm-hmm. That I have no idea why, <laughs> like, why are they bungee jumping? Right. Why is the werewolf bungee jumping? <laughs> I, I, I have, no idea. It's the nineties. Mm-hmm. You've sold me I on do. the movie, though. By the way, because I, I want to see a werewolf bungee jump. It has a. I will tell you, it has a a great, although again, very nineties soundtrack. <laughs> uh, the, you you both may remember the band Bush. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> they they had a a minor hit from from the soundtrack. Oh man. I you know what I don't know if I'll go back and watch that movie again now I almost it's, feel it's not good I, I know it's it's one of those things where I, I know it's like when you go to McDonald's and order like 20 cheeseburgers like I know this is not good for me I know I'm not going to enjoy it but you know here we are again you know it's like, <laughs> so um, I do know that like the Masters of Horror episode Dear Woman that Landis directed, it makes like an explicit reference to American Werewolf in London. It like references like the scene in Piccadilly Square. Um, and Dear Woman is, by the way, an awesome episode. It's like a hilarious episode of 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 Masters of Horror. I would strongly recommend that. Um, all right. I think if we're gonna start talking about this movie, we should start with the friendship between our two young men backpacking throughout Europe. David and Jack's friendship, I think is one of the linchpins of this movie and part of the, a big part of why it's remembered so fondly. So my first question to both of you, do you agree with their um, agenda in terms of like, start with the shitty parts of, of England and then end in Italy or do you want to start your three month vacation on a high note? Are you skipping England altogether? <laughs> oh no, definitely, absolutely not. I like their plan. I would, my plan would always be to end in Italy because I love Italy. Mm-hmm. So that I, I think it's smart. It seems solid. It seems like you could start with like you know the kind of drizzly and everything is going because whenever we vacation in England, because my wife's family is from there. If we're there for like two, three weeks, it rains every day. And then the day that we, you know, take the bus back to Heathrow, it's like beautifully <laughs> sunny. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's going to be like sunny for the, like three weeks. We always miss the good stretch of weather. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think like, you know, obviously this movie starts like it starts. You see David and Jack on the back of a truck with a bunch of sheep that are all penned in literally the lambs being led to slaughter. Like there is like zero. It's like get a giant anvil and start whacking (laughs) the audience over the head with it. Um, There's no subtlety to it whatsoever. Um, Where do you think this, this pairing ranks in terms of all time, like best friendships in horror? Well, I, I have to say I'm biased because 
Jack is my favorite horror movie character, just of all mm-hmm. of all horror movies, just just the entire genre. He is my 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 favorite character. I have a I have a long standing crush on Griffin Dunn. I, I I follow him on Twitter on, on Instagram because I love him. He's like old enough to be my dad at this point, but but I just love him so mm-hmm. much. And and he just he's so funny. And the way his his I love you know obviously the the reappearance of his character throughout the movie, mm-hmm. and, and I've often told people that if I was a character in a movie that would be me mm-hmm. I'd be killed off almost immediately, and then basically keep showing up you know in various states of decomposition to to you know kind of you know, both counsel and taunt the hero, uh, but as far as their friendship yeah I mean they're they're supposed to be college students yep. right yep. this this you know this feels again like like David and Nurse Price's relationship you know it feels very lived in it, it feels very authentic a lot of other movies would kind of just make it seem like these were just two people sort of met on this trip and and you know decide they were going to hang out which is something that doesn't really happen in real life but but you you believe in them as as you know as a as a friendship absolutely yeah and i i have to agree with all of that especially having a crush on griffin dunn because i'm obsessed with griffin dunn um but yeah in my notes for the movie on my last rewatch say you know Jack is the glue that holds this movie together. He is the through line for me. And one of my favorite shots in the film is when it's a long shot of them walking away from the camera, just Mm -hmm. telling knock knock jokes and goofing around and talking about, you know, girls at college. And it's their chemistry is so great as friends. It establishes them as, you know, you can tell they've been friends for a long time. They're really close. And it's a creepy shot because just the way it's set up, but it's also so charming and so likable and you want so badly for things to end well for right. both of these men, even though you know it's something terrible is coming. I just I'm such a big fan of that shot and just holding on them goofing around for so long. I I'm trying to think of a better friendship in horror, but I, I'm coming up with nothing right now because they are fantastic together. It, 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 to me, it sets up the kind of friendships you see in movies like Shaun of the Dead and Jennifer's Body. Um, I would say it there's it's just feels within 10 minutes completely lived in. Mm-hmm. You get who both of these people are. Like Jack is a little bit more of like the prickly of the two, um, but he's prickly without being an out and out jerk. Mm-hmm. Um and there's like you mentioned like them just kind of walking down the road telling knock knock jokes there's that moment right before that where um griffin dunn is like wiping away like a snot bubble that he got and he's like cracking himself up (laughs) because he's got this giant like booger coming out of his nose and landis like that's the take that landis uses because it feels so authentic Mm -hmm. it's not this stage shot it's not this kind of dialogue where you know you're doing like you know talking over one another rat tat a tat it's just like two friends bantering back and forth and then they walk into the slaughtered lamb together and the moment they walk in it becomes like a classic fish out of water story just like from their appearance like they're wearing these huge puffy you know like mountain climbing jackets they've got their jansport backpacks and then you have just a bunch of like gnarly old dudes in tweed and corduroy you know pounding back pints of guinness at the pub and nobody wants them there 
Yeah, I love a record scratch moment, both in comedy and horror. And this one is a perfect combination of both because mm-hmm. it's so funny because they are completely out of place. They, you know, these very Yankee tourists showing up in this very British pub, but they've also entered this, you know, cloistered society centered around basically a werewolf cult, essentially. Like, you mm-hmm. know, these people gather every night to stay away from the werewolves and they've got, you know, the totems on the walls to keep themselves safe. It's to me, that's like a perfect marriage of the horror and the comedy in this movie because they walk in, you've got that record scratch moment, but they've also kind of walked in to something where they're clearly in over their heads with the pentagram on the wall and um, all these people who know what's waiting for them outside and won't save them from it. Well, it's interesting because they, they're not, they don't treat them badly. They're just, they're very, very cold. Mm -hmm. And then you have the one character who does want to tell them and then like, no, don't tell them because I, I think that they realize this might be their opportunity to, to, to finally stop the werewolf mm-hmm. deal. Unfortunately, it means sacrificing these tourists, but you know what? They're outsiders. They don't know. Them. Right. You know, yeah. So be it. That's the way it goes. Bad luck for them. Yeah. That'd be- you know, it's nothing, per- it's nothing personal. They just, they just, you know, had the, 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 you know, misfortune of showing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The barkeep doesn't want to let them go. Like the barkeep yeah. is like, we can't do this. Like that's a, you know, that's a horrible idea. What do we think of our chess players joke, by the way, the remember the Alamo. Uh, <laughs> I think it's one of the, you know, total out of left field moment. And again, I think there's such a good, like he's probably not the first time that he's told a joke like that or has maybe even told that specific joke. Uh, and again, like it establishes so much of just who these, you know, British weirdo. And there are so many towns like this in Great Britain. Like my wife is from a town where 75 people live there year round and everyone gathers at the pub. Um, pretty much on a nightly basis, and everyone knows everybody. There are no werewolves, but you know, <laughs> that you exactly. know of. that we know. True, true, that is true. Um, so they leave the pub. They are out on the moors. Um, you have like that howling, and the new mix of the movie that howling kind of circles them. Mm-hmm. There's a shot that I love in this. It's like when the wolf is circling them. David and Jack look straight into the camera. And they're just staring like it's kind of all around us right now. And it's just this, it, it, I caught it maybe for the first time in my last rewatch. Like it's just so creepy because you feel like they can see you as you're watching the movie and you just want to tell them to like run. <laughs> what I love, uh, I liked a moment before that when the people inside the pub can, can hear the wolf howling mm-hmm. and they're just like they're all looking like oh shit yeah. <laughs> like, like, like yeah you know, like like you know some of them look scared some of them look kind of indifferent you know some of them look sort of you know pained that they you know they want to help them mm-hmm. but they can't so like i hear nothing and you can feel the weight of their consciousness pull them their conscious pull yep. them down like they're well, I said, they're not bad people right. they just you know they they you know they just this is you know the only way they mm-hmm. know how to deal to deal with the problem right. And their their plan, you know, outside of David and Jack showing up, which throws a monkey wrench in it, their plan is a solid one. It's like, look, two to three nights a month, we're going to gather in this building. We're going to be protected with the pentagram there, and we're all going to be accounted for. If it's not a solid, it's not a bad plan as far as like protecting yourself goes. Do you get the feeling they know who the werewolf is in the village? Like, is there... 
any sort of indication they know who this dude is, or is it a mystery? I would, or does it even matter? You know, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I didn't, I've never even considered that, honestly. That's a good question. Um, I would think that if they knew who, who it was, they would have tried to, to get rid of him mm-hmm. in some way in his, in his human right. form. Mm-hmm. But who knows? Maybe, maybe they, maybe they, out of a sense of propriety, mm-hmm. they can't bring themselves to, to kill him when he looks mm-hmm. normal. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I mean, it, as small as this village is, surely process of elimination tells them who the werewolf is. Unless it's an outsider, which to me doesn't make sense since it's such mm-hmm. an insular community. So they yeah. just, they wait it out. And yeah, I agree with Gina that, you know, they can't, it's immoral to kill a person. So they have to wait until they're in, the man is in werewolf mm-hmm. form, but they won't, don't want to be out on the moors when that happens. So right. they, they just wait it out every month. Yeah. So the attack happens. Um, this, by the way, I don't. Army of the Dead, like Zack Snyder's movie yep. this past year, directly. Yep. You could either call it homage or <laughs> rips it off completely. Like, oh, I'm sure it was a deliberate yeah. reference. Not like you know, you know, oh, they'll never, they'll <laughs> never see this. That was, you know, the, yeah. the the way it was framed. That the you know even had like you know, kind of fog lifting in the background. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it was 100 meant to be a tribute to that. Very rarely do the Leo pointing at the screen <laughs> moment, but I did the Leo pointing at the, and then the movie is all downhill from there. Um, you know, and what do we make of like David running away from, I mean, like I can't blame him in that moment. Like that's terrifying. Oh, I mean, I mean, Jack, Jack was, you know, he mm-hmm. was getting killed. Mm-hmm. There was no, there was, there was no, I don't think there was any way he could save him, yeah. at, that, save him at that point. And, but I also feel like that he is struggling. Yeah with the with the guilt of, of running away from mm-hmm. him and, and not really trying to you know to help him exactly this to me this movie is a study of survivor's guilt and that's where it mm-hmm. starts yes. when he runs away and then realizes what he's done and runs back and it's yeah. it's such a beautiful examination of like grief and guilt and what that does to a person i mean i'm sure we'll get into that more in scenes that we discuss in a little bit but Mm -hmm. yeah that's where it starts that look on his face right before he turns back around and then from there it's just all about survivor's guilt yeah it's and then when he sees jack like again beautiful makeup work by Mm -hmm. uh rick baker rick baker talks about really pummeling griffin done with the werewolf head as because you know he, he approached griffin before the scene and was like hey just so you know like this thing it's brand new um it's pretty sensitive like if you pull it too hard the face of it will come off and like these are expensive please don't like really hit it when you're you know and i'll be gentle and griffin done like absolutely like two seconds into the first take rips the thing apart <laughs> And, and he's and I think Dunn's reaction was like, well, I'm an actor. What do you want me to do? And Baker is like, all right, motherfucker, it's on. <laughs> and like from that point on, he like takes the werewolf head and just starts beating the snot out of Griffin, like using it as a bludgeon. He's like, I'll show you like getting his like any sort of like mummy issues Ricky Baker had in that moment. He's like, I'm working them out on Griffin Dunn's face right now. Um, lo- you know, and then you get the, you know, the, the, um, shot, you know, you, you have your where your where if exposed as like a, a creepy, weird old man. Um, steam coming off him because it's just it is that cold out there, and this poor dude who plays the werewolf in human form, like they just hired some local guy to be a naked old man 
on the moors in the freezing cold weather. Again, like another Landis, another example of like not really taking anyone's safety into consideration. Um, but what a shot we get. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go to the the hospital. And here is my question for you both. Frank Oz's character, the the um, the assembly, the the um, assemblyman from American Ambassador, says there's no need for hysterics. I, I understand you're upset, but there's no need for hysterics. Now, I want to ask a question: If you've just watched your best friend get eviscerated in front of you, and then you were attacked with such force that you've been torn open, you've been in a coma for a month. And you don't, you wake up, you don't know where you, with you are. If this is not cause for hysterics, what would be an appropriate situation for hysterics? <laughs> my, my notes <laughs> at this point in the rewatch just say, oh, fuck off. Cause honestly, oh. like I can't think of any better reason to be mm-hmm. just a tad emotional. Oh, absolutely. I just love his like his like hi, you know, and I, like, I've given the police I've given the police the okay to talk to you. Like, you know, great, thanks, yeah. I guess. Um yeah, Frank Oz is brilliant. And it's mm-hmm. you know, we'll talk, you know, the nightmare sequences next. Like I love these nightmare sequences because they slowly build and they never cheat. They really don't feel like a cheat. And they're truly, truly horrific. Like a lot of times in a horror, a horror movie, there's a terrible, terrible nightmare. And then the person wakes up and you're like, well, that scare didn't actually happen. There's just like a bad dream. These like, you know, you're in a nightmare. And it's, you know, to your point about survivor's guilt, Jessica, you're getting a peek into David's struggle in that moment. This mm-hmm. idea that like, I'm, I'm still here. Like I've been left behind and my best friend has not been. And this uncertainty, like what, what am I now? Like what's going to become of me? Yeah. I, um, when I was a kid and I first watched this movie, um, I, I found the dream involving the, um, the, I guess you would call them mutant Nazis, Mm -hmm. uh, who shoot up his parents' house and kill his family. That was, absolutely that was way more terrifying to me when i was a kid mm-hmm. than, than anything involving werewolves and now i enjoy because it's just such, such a weird moment oh, yeah. um where it, and it's you i rank this up there with the dream sequence in the exorcist as as you know a horror movie dream that actually feels like what a dream feels like yes yeah you know where, where you know it, it's mixing the familiar and the unfamiliar you know, it's his home. His siblings are watching the Muppet Show. Um, you know, and then all of a sudden, he just sees these like monsters with guns mm-hmm. break in and and just kill everybody. Right. And then, you know, just before he wakes up, they kill him too. And and it's just such a, a a jarringly strange moment. And it's it's fair to say, like this comes out in eighty one. David is probably like mid twenties, like early to mid twenties. So you figure he's born in the mid to late fifties. It's not out of the question that like either his parents or his grandparents would have shared stories of the Holocaust with him. Right. And you get this idea like this, it's again, taps and there's the comment that one of the nurses makes earlier, like when he's not woken up yet, like, Oh, I think he's Jewish. I took a peek down there. And there's this idea of again, survivor's guilt and tying that into things like the, the Jewish experience of the Holocaust and those that were interred and survived versus the 6 million persons that did not, 
shot and how that experience would weigh on a person as well. So it feels like a very authentic experience that someone's surreal nightmare would go to something like, you know, Nazi werewolves breaking into your home. Exactly. Right. There are a lot of references to that. Like the doctor is talking about someone he doesn't want to have dinner with. And he says, well, if I survived Rommel, like there are a lot of mm-hmm. explicit references to the Holocaust, you know, which again, I think really plays into the idea of survivor's guilt. You know, I've, I've, I remember seeking out um, like writing from Jewish writers about this um, because I saw someone mention the idea and I thought that was so interesting. And then I rewatched it kind of in that context and picked up on a lot more that time around. But yeah, I, I do. I love the nightmare logic of the dreams. Like I'm me, but I'm not me because, mm-hmm. you know, right now David is him, but not him because he's transforming into yeah. something. Um, and yeah, the, some of the most effective scares. And like you said, really organic scares, not just, Oh, let's ha- put a nightmare in so we can have a jump scare and spook the audience for a second. You know, yeah. it, it makes sense from a character point of view. And, Two things I, I thought of like rewatching this again. Number one, what I caught this time around is like the two little kids don't actually freak out until the Nazi kicks the television screen <laughs> in. Like it's not, you know, mom's body goes like flying across the room like it's been pulled on a hook. Like you started a car and gone zero to 60 and her body's attached to like a hook on it. And dad's been cut down and the kids are still like watching the Muppet show. (laughs) Um, It's not until they kick in the screen that the kids like now they're scared. Um, The other thing, like, and this was based because there was an article this past, I think last week, um, Frank Oz talks about how he's no longer welcome to perform as one of the Muppets um, as their own now by Disney. And he talks about how, you know, under Jim Henson, like how subversive the Muppets could actually be. Like, mm-hmm. yes, there was children's entertainment. There was obviously Sesame Street uh, and the Muppet show and the Muppet movie. But there was always this idea of like subversion with the Muppets. There was like this weird humor that went along with it. And, and they could get a little bit, not risque. That's, you know, maybe taking it too far, but it's not outside the realm. It doesn't feel unbelievable that like Jim Henson would allow his creations to appear in this sort of way in a movie right. um, in a way that like no chance in hell that like that would happen now with like Disney owning the Muppets. And like to Frank Oz's point, they don't seem to have any idea. I, I would argue that very few of Disney's attempts to like use the Muppets in any way have been successful. Right. They don't understand the core appeal. Like you mentioned, I think mm-hmm. there's a certain chaos at the center of the Muppets that Disney is not a fan of. They like order and control and not chaos. No. And I also want to point out like Frank Oz's pitch to Jim Henson for a Muppet movie he wanted to direct was brilliant. It was Gonzo convincing Kermit to let him direct the next Muppet movie and him spending half the budget on the opening credits. So as the movie went on, it just started to look cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because <laughs> there was no money. And oh, I wish that I would, I would love to see that. Okay. Uh Moving on, I guess, like, I want, if there's any proof that the NHS is superior to the American healthcare system, (laughs) you have Dr. Hirsch, who takes this road trip to investigate David's story 
after David has been discharged and no longer his responsibility. He's like, you know what? This American kid, maybe he's onto something. I am going to drive two hours out into like East bumfuck England (laughs) to go investigate this story and to grab a pint. Like that is true dedication in a healthcare worker. And yeah. And I love that, you know, it's so frustrating in movies seeing characters doubt their own sanity because everyone around them is telling them they're Mm -hmm. crazy. So it's so refreshing, even though Dr. Hirsch doesn't really buy the werewolf story, he still doesn't totally think that David is crazy. And it's just, it's so refreshing to see, you know, as you said, a healthcare professional actually believes someone for once, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I, that's one of my favorite things about his character that he's one of the few people who actually listens to David. Mm Hmm. And it's not like, you know, it's not that he believes that David was attacked by a werewolf Mm -hmm. or that there are monsters out there, but he believes that like David saw something different from what the official report is Mm -hmm. and it's affected him in some way and he wants to help him. Right. He also, also, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, he also gets my favorite line the entire movie, probably the biggest laugh for me, Mm -hmm. is when everything goes to hell after David transforms in in the theater where he, he calls, the doctor calls Alex, he says, we have to go to Piccadilly Square, there's a commotion. The British art of understatement. <laughs> yeah, literally, a guy has got his head bitten off in front of dozens of people, and he's like, there's a commotion. It's that classic, yeah, you're right, the stiff upper lip. Mm-hmm. I think my, yeah. my it will get it's getting ahead. My favorite line is, when uh, I think it's Gerald Brinsley, which again, like the most British, it, it won the Oscar for most British name in a movie <laughs> in 1981. He's like, I assure you, this is not the least bit amusing is the greatest line, just like the delivery of it. Um, I wish I had more opportunity to use that in real life. Okay. So before we talk about David and Alex, let's circle back to David and Jack, because that first appearance by jack and you see like you david sees it before the audience does and you see david's face drops and it's right after i believe it's right after the nightmare that he wakes up from where um it's the nightmare within the nightmare i forgot to mention that where he wakes up and then the nazi is in the room and he like guts uh nurse price like that is a great scare a perfect scare right there Mm -hmm. then we see like jack and his he's it's grotesque it is like some of the best makeup work truly disturbing stuff but jack is still jack like jack is still to your point about him being such a great character gina he's cutting jokes that friend that friendship with david is still there like that warmth is still there yeah like uh, uh, one of the moments where it feels tragic is is what he you know he he tells david you know you're you're gonna you're gonna hurt people you need to kill yourself or you're gonna hurt people and uh you know david understandably gets very upset about this and jack's like please don't cry mm-hmm. <laughs> and i'm like you know even even in death he doesn't want to you know he doesn't want to yeah. hurt his friend and and i just love that so much it feels so real yeah and th- the way the makeup progresses like every mm-hmm. scene with the makeup is brilliant and griffin dunn plays it beautifully but the way it progresses is fascinating and the way that jack gets increasingly desperate for david to mm-hmm. kill himself to end the curse while still holding on to that you know 
I obviously I'm getting ahead of myself, but when they're discussing methods of suicide, he's like, I don't want it to hurt too much. I don't want my friend mm -hmm. to be in pain or to suffer. I just want this to be over so we can all be at peace. Th that tension between, you know, Jack's sorrow of seeing these bodies mount up in this kind of nether realm where they're stuck in limbo, you know, the sorrow and his own pain and anguish and being in pain over seeing uh, David suffer. It's just, it's a phenomenal performance. I, I know we're all praising him, but I don't think it gets talked about enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and Jack has to watch his body rot away while he navigates through the afterlife. Mm -hmm. Like he doesn't get any sort of release. Like he, he, you know, becomes like, again, like meatloaf basically <laughs> that second time. Although I don't, it's, I've never had green meatloaf. Um, but the other thing is like the, the flap of skin on his throat that is just yes, how it's moving when I he talks. It. It, it, yeah, it, it's just so it, it's so mm. realistic. I I actually use this comparison in an episode of my podcast to um, Sin City mm -hmm. when um, Clive Owen is is trying to get rid of um, uh, uh, God, um, Benicio del Toro's body, mm -hmm. and Benicio del Toro's neck has been slit. And he, you know, he imagines him talking to him and his head's kind of rolling around. Oh. And, and while he talks, like his voice, like it keeps because his, his, uh, his um, larynx is being stretched. Like his voice goes a little mm -hmm. higher and then it drops back down. And then it's like, because it's being stretched and torn and, and it's like, oh, you actually did research <laughs> on this, didn't you? Yep. you know? <laughs> I think. Baker talks about that scene. He says like one of the things that was cut from the movie to make sure it wouldn't get an X rating is like at one point when Jack is eating the toast, it actually comes out through like the hole in his throat. Like when he swallows oh, it, which would have been like at that. I oof, talk about being a kid and seeing it, Gina, like that would have been the moment where I'm like, Nope. Like if I saw that as a little kid, like that's yeah, too much. I, I would have been like, I would have been like, you know, say, Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. and they're like throwing up at the same time. Yeah. Um, it is, it's really, again, like the, that, that scene is just, it, it, it's a great insight into David's mind at the time. And it hammers home like the tragedy of what these two young kids like really go through. It really nails it home. Um, but then you have like the burgeoning romance between, uh, Alex and David. And it feels so, I mean, David Naughton is just like, I don't understand why he wasn't like a much bigger star. Um, he's so charismatic. Like he's got this like great energy to him. He's funny. He's charming. He's super handsome. Um, you can see him like a lot of times I'll watch a movie and I'll be like, that is a dude punching way above his league right now. Um, in terms of like scoring with like someone as beautiful as Jenny Ogater is in this movie, but you see it like you can see why she's attracted to him and why she finds him like both sad and attractive. Yeah, I mean he's funny for one thing, and mm -hmm. he and he's he's self-effacing, which I I don't know if those are particularly uh you know, British qualities. <laughs> it, it, it may be something that she's not entirely used to. Yeah, it is is a charm. Like when they leave the and again another reason why the British healthcare system is better than the American one. Like my HMO 
does not include like someone like Nurse Price taking me home and betting me. Um, <laughs> I was gonna say I, you don't you don't get you don't you don't you don't get the Foxy Nurse package. I do not get that, and I have checked into it, and I've asked you know my provider <laughs> how much, and they're like we don't we don't offer anything like this again. <laughs> what a healthcare system. Um, so Foxy nurses for all. Oh my go. god, and I just I love like you know the peak late early 80s late 70s like punk rockers on the train um alex and got the leopard print hair i love it because it's it's perfect leopard print hair like Mm -hmm. the dude with the rainbow streaks they're really really sloppy um it kind of looks like i used to dye my hair with like kool-aid back when i would dye my hair and that's what it looks like um but that leopard print is like perfect perfectly done Mm -hmm. um and just the like these prices are outrageous. Like there's such witty banter between um, Alex and, and David throughout, like when they're kind of like wooing one another, like, how do you live like carefully? It's just such a great, it's perfect. I really love, it. I just love watching the two of them. Um, and then again, Jack appears after like David and Alice, like make love for the first time. Um and like Jack immediately like peers in the room, like, ah, bag to nurse, eh? And it feels like a perfect character moment. Like it doesn't feel um it's like, yep, that character would in fact do that. Oh yeah, for sure. Um all right. Anything before we move to like the kind of transformation scenes, anything else in the hospital that jumps out at all besides like little Benji? Oh, I love little Benji. <laughs> It's great. No. Have you ever been beaten around the head and neck? No. And then the one kid who like runs over and slaps Alex on the butt and then runs away. Part of that foxy nurse package. That's what you get. You know, I feel like you could get away with that at age six, but not at age whatever I'm at at this point, (laughs) nor, nor should I. But but to, but to go back to what Jessica said about, um, you know the the scene pulling away of Jack and David uh, telling jokes. You've got another calm before the storm scene mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. with Alex and Benji yeah. when right. when you know she's she's playing with him and tickling him and he's and he's laughing and and you know then it pans up to you Moon. know like oh shit it's full mm-hmm. moon exactly. <laughs> you know, like, you know, something bad is about to happen yeah. and we get you know we get this is this is probably the most. Not even probably. This is the most famous werewolf transformation scene in movie history. Like, And the howling one is great as well. But this one is really, it's shot like Landis made it a point. He was like, I want it shot in bright light. And I want the audience to see everything. Like, I don't want anything in the shadows. And Baker talks about David Naughton being an absolute champ to work with throughout this process. Because you're talking about up to 10 hour days in the makeup chair to make the prosthetics for this. And some of it sounds like really simple. He talks about how you have two pairs of syringes in the hand that pulls up. And as you pull one out, it just pulls the fingers up, but nothing like this. Like I can't imagine sitting in a theater in 1981 and seeing this go in front of you and, and, and you wonder like, how is this happening right now? Yeah. I, and and you know what? It still it still holds up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's still so good. And I would I would I would one hundred percent choose choose uh, you you know 
bladders and balloons mm-hmm. over CGI yeah. transformations any day. Oh yeah, yeah. Like this, this blew my mind when I watched it in the '90s or the 2000s. Like I, I was just enthralled. I couldn't understand how they were doing it. I, it just it was so amazing. It's still my, it's one of my you know top three top five favorite practical effects of all time Mm. just because Mm -hmm. yeah it absolutely holds up it's amazing it really sells the physical pain of it that like yeah i was i was good yeah like yeah i was good i was gonna say he he looks like this is agony Mm -hmm. yeah he he looks in the camera and reaches out to us for help because he's screaming in pain and like you mentioned nobody had really explored that before how much agony you'd be in with your body going through all these contortions right. yeah i i'm thinking of um the uh, lon cheney version of the werewolf which is uh more or less sort of stop motion mm-hmm. uh but he's literally just like kind of sitting there with like his eyes closed yeah while while you know he gets he grows hair that's about it but but he doesn't get that full body you know his bones cracking mm-hmm. and like his spine stretching and all and and, right. and it just this is so visceral right and you get the of course he would strip naked like he would burst out of his clothes if he didn't mm-hmm. um because his whole you know he takes on like twice his mass at that point um but you, even before like a single hair comes out a new hair comes out of him you see like a sheen of sweat like because he's just so he's like his whole body temperature has gone mm-hmm haywire and he's screaming in pain you could feel like his brain chemistry is changing like you know when he's screaming like just he's having the Tourette's moment almost and he's screaming out and you get the and I for the longest time I couldn't figure like why is he screaming like that you know before anything randomly and you just figure like his brain is like changing and probably becoming much more bestial before like the physical Mm -hmm. changes in him the external physical changes start to take place um but what i love is is that he you in the like the hours leading up to it he starts like mm-hmm. acting weird mm-hmm. like he's he like paces around the house you know he he you know he he keeps complaining that that he's not hungry yeah. uh and, and it's almost like you know i don't know if either you have dogs mm-hmm. but but like a dog before a storm mm-hmm. they just get very restless yeah. Yeah. And and I I don't know if that's necessarily what it was supposed to evoke, but that's what it feels like. You know, he can't sit down. Mm-hmm. I looked at it like it's the night before the full moon or the day of the full moon. He's been visited by his like dead best friend twice. Even if he thinks that he's imagining those visitations, like most of him is probably thinking there's there's no such thing as werewolves. Like this is nothing's going to happen to me. But there's that small lizard part of the brain that doesn't know that can't account for everything that isn't quite sure what's going on that he 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 can't be assured and that restlessness that's where it stems from at that point and that's why mm-hmm. you know he can't pick a tv show to watch he can't find something to eat he can't concentrate at all um and it's all set to again like we, we haven't even talked about landis's choice of music in this movie <laughs> But, you know, setting it to like the one of like Credence Clearwater Revival's best songs, Bad Moon Rising, just like poppy, catchy, totally upbeat. Like it is 
it's if if there's a song that does not exemplify danger in any way, shape, or form, you know, like it seems like such an inappropriate choice of music, and I think that's why it works so perfect here. Yeah, I I've sometimes I've struggled like on you know I've seen this movie many many times. Sometimes I struggle with the tone, like the the very. Mm -hmm final scene and then we cut to as you said you know something very inappropriately catchy mm -hmm. and poppy and upbeat but i also love you know sometimes i struggle with it and other times i'm like this is perfection this yeah. is you know we've got comedy and tragedy and horror and you know absurdity and it's just keeping you off balance at every moment and it's you know at the end of the day it's just funny to have so many moon puns on the soundtrack but uh, yeah, that kind of that contrast between the two might be part of why everything works so well. Because, you know, we talked about the mix of genres like romance and just drama and horror and comedy. You know, I think if if it were just a spooky score or a more, quote unquote, appropriately somber soundtrack, mm -hmm. it wouldn't work as well with this kind of mashup of genres. No. Yeah, I, I love I love a good uh, ending a horror movie on it on an on upbeat song. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I liked um, in Midsummer when they used uh, the sun the, the sun isn't going to shine anymore. Mm -hmm. I just <laughs> thought that was um, the uh, another good use was um, in in the movie Us. Yes, where they had the uh, that the the uh, uh, Le Fleur, the mm -hmm. Minnie Riperton mm -hmm. song. Uh, I just I just I just love how it it, it is. It's such a jarring total shift i just really really works. Right. i love it but it wants to send you back out into the real world on like okay it's just a movie like we're reminding you it's just a movie it's all right <laughs> to get back out out there i know that like elmer bernstein who did like the little score that there is for this movie like bernstein did talk about he wanted to score the transformation scene and landis said no he said what will really drive the point of the tragedy home and the sadness home of this transformation is if it's set against this really kind of like not upbeat or uplifting song, but a really serene, because it's set against that like blue moon, mm -hmm. a much a different version of it. Like if we set it to something like that, and I think he talked, he wanted to get, um, he initially approached like Bob Dylan to get his version of blue moon and Dylan at the time was like a born again and didn't want his mu uh, music associated with like a horror movie. Um, but he talked about wanting to do something like that because it would drive like the tragedy of what's going on. And really like one of the most tragic things about this movie is David's failure in everything that he tries to do. Like, what makes this movie work so well is like David and Jack and Nert and Alex, they're just regular people that are thrown into circumstances that they are in no way equipped to deal with. And I, I see a modern version of this movie where you get like the two Chris's and they're able to like somehow fight back against um, becoming a lycanthrope and they're able to either overcome it or, it's snatched away at the last moment, but everything David tries to do from protecting his friend Jack to killing himself, to warning the police, to like warning others, like to getting arrested. He can't do anything. Even when he calls home to say goodbye to his family, everyone is gone and everything David tries to do throughout the movie, he fails at it. And that's one of the real sad tragedies of this movie. 
Exactly. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. You're, these are all excellent points. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not because it's not because he did something wrong. He does everything mm-hmm. right and still fails. Yeah. That's that's the saddest part. That's the scariest yeah. part. But it's all just it's all just circumstance. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, who who you know, it's you, it would not be uncommon just to randomly call your parents' mm-hmm. house and no one's mm-hmm. home. Yeah. And and there's it's obviously there are no cell phones, so you can't get a hold of them. Um, so the tr- transformation again is just straight up beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, God damn this, like this, these next few sequences, like you get <sighs> the three homeless people that are, uh, murdered. You get like the, the couple that want to give their friend a scare <laughs> and they're so chipper. Um, the, um, subway tunnel scene was, I guess, inspired by a movie called Rob Meat, a British horror movie from 1972 that also took place in like the uh, London subway. But goddamn, that whole sequence is is absolutely horrifying. It's so good. The way it shot, like the the handheld, it's like so mm-hmm. skittish and nervy. The way the camera moves, and we don't see david as the werewolf until right at the very end and then it's it's pretty brief you know it's a beautiful shot but just that sense of movement where we're sticking with the man who ends up being killed and feeling his like animal panic and Mm -hmm. trying to run with him and get away from what it is i it's just brilliantly shot all the choices the editing choices and the camera choices are amazing on that scene no yeah, I uh, I live in New York, so I rely on the subway for for to to get around, and I probably think about that scene at least once a week. Yeah, like like particularly if there's like uh, uh, if I have to go through a station or make a connection that has a very long tunnel. Uh, if I'm the only person there, I walk very fast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was going to ask, is there ever a moment in s- somewhere like New York or London where the um, subway would be that deserted? Um, you know, I, I, I had to say in the past year, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, there's been times when the subways, you know, if I have to, if I, to, if I had to go into my office, mm-hmm. um, the, the subway stations were pretty eerily empty so it, it it does happen i mean you know you know in in, in better times it's maybe have to be like three o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. but but you know it, it, it does happen yeah. yeah and then like you said jessica that first reveal of like the full body of the werewolf and you kind of get a sense of the scale of just how massive it is like it's yeah. just like a it's like a breathtaking moment like i just love and again, you get the point of view, but a couple years after John Carpenter's Halloween, you get like the point of view shots of this guy being chased through the subway by this creature. And the camera is even like low to the ground. Like you're mm-hmm. getting it very much from the wolf's perspective, just in terms of height and scale. And it's just, oh, it's perfect. And again, it's part of the reason why, you know, just Landis is made to me like such a close to a perfect movie. Um and to your point, Gina, like how this movie changes tone, you get the aftermath of six people horrifically murdered and you have like a naked American man stealing <laughs> balloons. It's just the fallout from this. Like he never, like Landis never forgets, like, okay, we're making both a horror movie and a comedy. And that scene is like, it is funny. Like everything about it works from like, you know, I've had nights that I don't quite remember what happened the night before. And I've woken up in places where I'm like, how the fuck did I get here? 
Um, I've had clothes on, fortunately, but like that, <laughs> you know, I'm the balloon thief. You know, why would and and the boy's logic is so sound. He's like, why would a balloon thief give me two pounds? Like again, <laughs> perfect. A kid ruled. I know you meant you both mentioned your favorite. That's my favorite line. A naked American yes. man stole my balloons. That's oh. my favorite. It's so good. It's perfect. <laughs> and just like him, you know, bumping into like the dowdy old British woman when he's completely naked and her, you know, perfect. And I think like they say, like he, they told her like a guy is going to jump out in front of you. Just react however you want. And I think she said to David, not and like, I didn't look down. I promise you, I didn't look down. <laughs> um, and David Naughton really goes for it because he is like naked a lot throughout this movie mm-hmm. and just goes for it. Like I couldn't do this. I'd be so self-conscious. I would not be able to do this. Uh, and a lot of actors don't anymore. No. Now it's a big deal when you know, oh, this actor is gonna get naked. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, people used to get people used to get naked in movies all the time, you know. And you have him like in that the the steals the red like woman's coat. And again, th- another reason why Alex is the greatest girlfriend ever. She's so chill. Like he's gone missing. He shows up at her apartment in the middle of the morning wearing nothing except a woman's jacket saying i don't remember anything that happened the night before let's screw and her reaction her reaction was like oh here you are like it's so good to have you back again you know like she's so like relieved to see him and is like she's writing off a lot at that like this you're one day into this relationship you are letting a lot of things go right now <laughs> he looks just so cute and charming right yeah. i think you know a part of her really really believes him and understands how sincere he is which back to your mm-hmm. point about david Naughton, just goes back to how just how much screen presence he has and how charming he is that you know i i would believe him in that situation just because he's just so charming yeah it's I I think that's a good point because he's so charming. I think there are others who would not be able to pull that move off quite mm-hmm. so well. Yeah. Um, you know, they show up in someone's jacket saying, I don't remember the night before. You might be like, you got to get your bag and go and I need to change. <laughs> yeah. We're going to be changing the locks at that point. <laughs> he's just, you know. Uh, again, and, and it's going back, like Alex's whole speech to him when she first brings him home, like I've had seven lovers. Like, I don't know. I've never given that speech the first time before I go to bed with somebody. Like I've never like looked at someone and said, here's my complete sexual history. Um, <laughs> I love that moment yeah. so much. That's, that's when yeah. I fell in love with Alex a little bit when she yeah. kind of gives this spiel and is like so eager, but so shy mm-hmm. at the same time. I mm-hmm. just love her. Yeah. Can't say enough great things about Jenny Ogden's performance mm-hmm. in this movie. Just yeah. perfect. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, I, just to run through the rest of the movie, it seems very difficult to get arrested in Britain. <laughs> it seems much. Everybody is just so chill in this. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I feel like that again, that's a little bit of a, a gag about how, how, you know, British people mm-hmm. are very restrained. Yes. Like uh, uh, one of the other scenes of someone getting killed is, is the couple who gets killed on the way to their friend's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, the friend comes out and looks for them and finds some sort of body part right. on the, on, on the a, ground. A it might wet be wet arm. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's an arm. That's right. And, and he just sort of looks up like, "Well, then." <laughs> it just like cuts away. Right, like, Whereas, like you know, if it was you know it, you know in America, you know, someone would just start like screaming, yes. and he just like he, he just like, huh? I was just gonna <laughs> say, did any characters other than David and Jack scream in this movie? I think they're the only ones who actually yell or the, scream. The like finally, like during during when when it, when it busts when the crowd busts out yeah, of theater, yeah, yeah. people yeah. people there are a couple of people screaming yeah. in the crowd. But generally yeah. speaking, everybody's reactions are like even the you know David's other victims right. when they're all gathered in the like only the one guy seems kind of pissed at mm-hmm. him. Where and even then he's just sort of like you know grim. Yeah, yeah. The, he's you know, whereas the couple is sort of cracking jokes. Yeah, and, yeah he's more upset you, at his lack of manners than anything. It seems. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get the feeling that like Gerald Bringsley, the one who is, and he gets off that great line, like when he's saying, you know, get a gun. He's like, if you put it in your mouth, you'd be sure not to miss. Mm-hmm. You get a feeling that Gerald Bringsley, he's not going to be missed by the living very much. <laughs> no. He seems like kind of a prick. Um, mm-hmm. Like you're like, this is not a guy that had a lot of friends. Um, <laughs> so he's he's just surly. The only other person I can think that was like, screaming in panic was like the cop that goes into the theater when he comes running out of it to shut the door. Um, He's like, he's obviously he's freaked out. Speaking of the theater, I would watch this whole adult film. Like this is brilliant. Like this again. It's so good. Yeah. That, and, and I love it that it's that that was a, a weird running joke for for, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. for John Landis' movie See You it's Next when, Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's it's awesome. And just the, the 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 gag that they pull in that movie, it's like one of the best jokes in the movie. <laughs> and this little like he's like, You told me you would never do this again. Like I never promised you any such thing. And he's like, not you. And then he followed it up with like, I've never seen you before. And the guy's like, ah, oh yeah, it's great. It's just like super funny and so out of place in this really weird scene portal theater where there's like zombie Jack and <laughs> his six dead friends. It's in, and like to your point, like the uh, Gina, the first couple that is killed, like the woman is so chipper and she has that proverbial like stiff upper lip and it's like, ah, it's all going to be OK. I love it. It's just mm-hmm. perfect. You know, and it's almost like, you know, well, at least we're together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? like, yeah. I mean, if you have to be horribly killed, I mm-hmm. mean, at least you could go at least your, you know, your spouse yeah. or your partner could be there with you. No. Oh. Love the end of this movie, like love the pure chaos that goes on at the end of this movie apparently it was shot if not in real time pretty close to real time landis talks about how he was able to leverage his connections from working with the chicago pd on the blues brothers he actually had them make some calls to uh the british police saying hey this guy's okay he'll you know take care of the set he'll be in and out work with him like let him do what he wants to do so they actually do film this in Piccadilly Square. It was one of the first um, things to be shot there and who knows how long. It's pure chaos, but he says they were able to like get all the perfectly timed the crash. There's seven cameras placed around. Um, and then immediately after the scene cuts, like clear it out in minutes so that traffic wasn't held up for more than like maybe 20 minutes wow. in terms of getting it. It was like, 
really done on a tight, tight basis. Um, Landis is one of the stuntmen. Like he had gotten his start as a stunt person. So the, the scene of like the guy in a, a bandana with the beard getting thrown through the plate glass window, like that's John Landis going through the window. Um, and it's just like, what a fucking scene that is. Like just bananas. Yeah, it's a, when he like like bites the guy's head off. That's that's pretty gnarly. Oh, and it's the shitty cop. Yeah, yep. and it's the guy who's been the prick the whole movie. Like you're like, I'm not glad to see that person dead. I mean, I'm not upset to see that person right. dead. And I I love like I mentioned earlier, I love seeing what. Obviously, I've not experienced this myself, but what I imagine is a realistic depiction of what it would be like with a werewolf running loose in a dense urban center. You know, people are panicking and like cars are hitting each other and people are getting run over by cars trying to escape. Like it's utter chaos and it's so frightening in a different way. It's such a different way to tell a werewolf story in this same movie where we've had kind of this gothic classic werewolf vibe. And now you see what it's like having you know this wild animal run loose and people panic and the chain reaction of horror that kind of results from that Mm -hmm. oh yeah and you know what it is too it's like that that british resolve that kind of not um not showing any sort of emotion like you see how quickly it can break down when you have a giant beast roaming the streets right (laughs) yeah all of a sudden that kind of like stiff upper lip resolve like goes straight out the goddamn window (laughs) at that point and it's every person for themselves yeah exactly uh i would say this movie has one of the saddest endings of any horror movie i've ever seen um alex you know rush you know david's wolf being pinned down in the back of an alley there's like dozens of cops with guns ready to take him out alex admitting she loves him um and him like his the face softening for just a moment Mm -hmm. before he and then what the other thing that i caught in this is david is like splayed out in a very christ-like pose in this movie yes. it's like the the that stat the the carving of the pieta mm-hmm. where jesus is laid at the feet of his mother to even to the degree where there's like the pierce marks in his side and the blood coming out of it it's a very obvious like christian ar- allegory at that point mm-hmm. it's just haunting mm-hmm. it is it's the I have cried more than a few times at the ending of this mm-hmm. movie. Just yeah. seeing that brief moment of recognition when he takes in that he loves her and in my view commits suicide at that point by kind of lunging mm-hmm. forward. Um, God, it, it gets me every time. Yeah. And to the point to you, to the degree where it's laid out in the first shot of the movie, like when you first meet David and Jack, they are, on the back of that pen and it just it's telling you everything that happens in this movie is going to be inevitable so i guess we'll end with i I want to ask you both what do you both feel is the ultimate legacy of this movie i i see a few things i i still think this is probably the most perfect horror comedy ever made like Mm -hmm. it combines them both in such an interesting way and such a seamless way but also i i don't think it's it's not news that the werewolf transformation is incredible 
but I don't think it's talked about too much. Like I just, it's, Mm -hmm. it's that good that I think it deserves for people to talk about it all the time. Um, So it, as a werewolf movie in its effects and the way it treats the lore and as a horror comedy, I think those are the two things. That's the reason that people still talk about this movie all the time. I think it's justified that whenever you bring up werewolf movies, people always say, well, American werewolf in London. It's not the only great werewolf movie out there, but it certainly has to be in the conversation for for at least those two reasons. Um, Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to touch on the horror comedy thing too, because again, it's not easy to do well. I think a lot of times the comedy ultimately dilutes the horror um, and also sometimes the tonal shifts don't really work so well. I, I would say as a, as a, an example of that would be um, the reboot of Halloween from 2018, where they were trying very hard to, to really squeeze in some comedy mm-hmm. with it. Uh, you've got these, these, uh, you've got a very long sequence where these, you know, these cops in a patrol car are talking about bond me sandwiches mm-hmm. and then like the next time you see them they've been like horrifically murdered right. and and it just it doesn't i don't know it, it doesn't gel and i i tr- i've tr- i've tried to write a mixture of horror and comedy and it, it's not actually it's not easy uh because you, you you have to constantly ask yourself how far can i go with this you know, can i can i you know, you have this character who up to this point you know, has been the audience sir can they be killed off you know, could it be killed off in a way that, that you know, is is kind of funny and horrifying at the same time? And and also you have to think about, well, you know, what's what's funny to an audience, generally speaking? You know, like like the you know, waking up naked in a zoo, everybody's gonna think that's mm-hmm. funny. Everybody's gonna think that's absurd. But when the, the killing starts, that's not funny. They 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 turn down the the you know the, the humor on that. And then it becomes, you know, it, it becomes genuinely scary. And I think, and, and again, I, I have my issues with John Landis mm-hmm. because of, you know, the, the, the Twilight Zone thing and, you know, siring Max Landis. But, you know, he really just understands what he's trying to do here. And, and, and I think that, you know, most horror comedies after that have been trying to capture that. With with varying degrees of success, like I would say, what I would say, uh, you know, coming pretty close. Although it leaned way more into comedy than horror was um, Werewolves Within, mm. which came out earlier this year, which which definitely feels like an homage to that. Oh yeah, but it also it also I, I hate using the term game changer because it's such a cliche at this point. But as far as special effects in movies. You, in horror movies, you've got like this, and you've got um, the thing, which came out a mm-hmm. year later, both of which relied entirely on practical effects because you know that's all there mm-hmm. was at the time, and and you know the 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 fact that they still look as good as they do now is really remarkable when you look at CGI from fifteen years ago. It just looks like right. crap. You could just see right through it. And it's a really a reminder that if you can, and if you have skilled craftsmen, go with practical effects because it's going to look better. You know, go with real blood. Don't go with CGI blood. Well, not real blood. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, you know, go, go with real fake blood and not CGI blood. You know, go with you know, someone running around in a suit because it will look better. Right. 
there, to your point about you know CGI, I think tends to look dated much quicker mm-hmm. than, pract- than uh, practical effects do. If for no other reason, I think there's just something that happens inside the brain when you see a CGI effect that says, "I know that that's not real." Or I know that like there's nothing really on that screen except zeros and ones right now. Where with a practical effect, even if it's not like, I think about like the um, Kevin Bacon throat slashing scene in the original Friday the Thirteenth. Like that is a scene that like Blu-ray has done no favors to, but there's still something like tangible about it that would hold up much better than if you were to recreate that in a digital way. Um, Rick Baker wins the inaugural Oscar for best makeup, a category that was created because Baker's work is just so incredible in this movie that they had to honor it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if, you know, was one of the legacies of the movie, but to me, what this movie does aside from being extremely funny and extremely scary, it really cements this idea that the werewolf is probably the most tragic character in or monster in horror movies that like these are typically in the howling is a little bit different in that you have this community of persons that really embrace being werewolves and you have eddie who is a werewolf serial killer um this movie you have a character in david that through no fault of his own is going to change every month against his will in an incredibly painful way and that he is affected by all the people that he damages in this movie both you know physically and emotionally like you feel the weight of it um it doesn't give birth to horror comedies i'd say the first horror comedy is still probably abbott and costello meet the wolfman um but i don't think that i don't know if any movie has surpassed it in the past 40 years. Um, and you see its DNA in things like Shaun of the Dead, um, The Reanimator a few years later. You see like the that kind of relationship horror comedy. Um, to this day, I think the blueprint is still this movie. And I think to me, it's the greatest, it's the greatest werewolf movie of all time. And it's my favorite horror movie of all time. Yep, same. Mm-hmm. And to your point about werewolves as a tragic figure, I don't think this movie would be the iconic movie it is today without those relationships and without that mm-hmm. depth of emotion and characterization. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, do we take it? We it takes us time in in getting to know this character and getting the audience invested in it, which is, you know, one of the one of the the uh, focal points of my podcast is sort of is the characters in Mm -hmm. horror movies, which tend to be very, very underwritten uh, to the point where sometimes it is impossible to tell them apart, Mm -hmm. which, which, uh, which always, which always amuses me because sometimes they like have the same hairstyle or, or they make so little impression on the viewer that, that when, you know, horror, you know, befalls them, you just, you don't really feel anything. You're like you're sort of like it, it feels like they're like you. You're just checking off a list. It's like okay, there's that character, there's that character. Now we're at the final girl. Whereas here, you know, he sort of feels like someone you could you could know. Mm-hmm. Certainly, someone that you like. Some, and, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, and the fact that he, you know, this is sort of just fallen, you know, you know, fallen on him, and he doesn't want it, and he doesn't know how to control it, 
and, and he is a a you know a victim just as much as the people that get killed mm-hmm. when he transforms yeah. agreed if very at the very least i think we would all like to know someone like david like he's someone that it's very easy to spend almost two hours with someone like david um mm-hmm. there's a charm to david Naughton in the role here that is just incredible and he's surrounded like everybody in this movie all of the surrounding cast who even in like the few moments they have on screen i know we didn't spend a ton of time on that pub scene but the dart player who the menace in his voice when he's like you made me Mm -hmm. like miss i've never missed that board (laughs) like that's terrifying like you're like shit's about to go down (laughs) in a really horrible way right now please get out um it is it's scary you know it's it's and it's wonderful um yeah and that's us talking about an american i could talk about this movie for days and i'm sure that in my other show it'll be revisited and at some point i'll do something else with it um but i i love this movie and i would say this and a lot of the movies that john landis made from this era like are directly responsible for kind of shaping my sense of humor and my worldview to this day. So I owe it a great deal of debt for that reason alone. Um, Mm -hmm. And I may not be married to the woman I am if it wasn't for this movie. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows, you know? This movie brings people. (laughs) I I have have introduced uh, a lot of people to this movie it's like yeah you know, have you ever seen american world no oh we're gonna mm-hmm. sit down and watch mm-hmm. it right now yeah and I, I one more thing i'll share before like one more an, an, an anecdote from the movie like landis talks about when this movie premiered it, it had two preview screenings of it one of them was in chicago uh where you know blues brothers were set and he goes there's a thousand seat theater the marquee says from the new comedy from the director of blues brothers and landis looks at the marquee and he goes we're fucked. <laughs> and he, so he goes into the movie. There's a thousand people there. And he goes, as soon as Jack, and people are laughing and enjoying it, then Jack gets murdered. And about 400 people walk out of the theater. And then you know, the, the people that stay, they're enjoying the movie. They like in their set price. And then David turns into a werewolf. And then another 500 people. Why? said, by the end of the movie, there's about a hundred people left in the theater and he's like, I'm screwed. And he talks about the next screening was some theater. And he said it was some theater in New Jersey that for whatever reason had the best like per screen average whenever movies came out, it goes, it was a Saturday night teenage crowd and I get up and I'm going to, Landis talks about getting up to introduce the movie and saying, I just want to let you know it's a horror movie and everyone starts clapping and cheering. He goes, also there's like a lot of blood and gore in it and people clap and cheer some more. He goes, Oh, I hope this won't offend anybody, but there's a lot of nudity too. And people are really going <laughs> nuts at that point. And he goes, it was per- the perfect crowd to go see it. And that's when he knew this movie would work. Like it really, if you go into it expecting it to be just one thing, you're going to be disappointed from this movie. It's because it can embrace so many things and, and, and just flit in and out of them with such little effort that it's worked so well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right. Miss Gina Radcliffe, where can our listeners hear or find more of your work and what are you cooking up right now? 
well, I am the co-host of the Kill by Kill podcast, in which we talk about horror movies, uh, focusing on the characters and odd little details. Uh, we are currently, as we're recording, is working our way through um, The Exorcist. Uh, we, we, we survived talking about part two. <laughs> now, now, now we get to talk about something better in part three. Uh, we've also been going back and forth between that and the Scream series mm-hmm. uh, in preparation for uh, the upcoming release of Scream 5. Um, and we have we just finished season two of our side project in which we are watching we are rewatching Hannibal episode by episode. Uh, so there's that. Um, and I also write about movies and television at thespool.net. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of my recent reviews include uh, Malignant uh, and the third season of What We Do in the Shadows, which I, I love beyond reason. And that's, uh, yeah, that's where you can find me there. How, how will Kill by Kill tackle The Exorcist 4? which is essentially two movies. Like they filmed two. Will you cover both of them? I don't know. I don't know yet. Okay. I don't know. We may, we may just stick with the, the, the first three. Like the ready. Uh, we're, okay. we're, we're, yeah. We're still kind of, you know, playing around with that. But mm-hmm. as of night, as of right now, we're only going to do part three. Okay. Uh, not a bad one to end with. I mean, it's a great movie. No. I, I don't, agree with my former co-host assertion that it's better than the original but it's an excellent it's an excellent movie it's an excellent movie on its own um miss jessica scott you have a ton of bylines to your credit so you must be extremely busy (laughs) what are you what are you working on right now um, well, in the podcast world, I've got something cooking up with my friend Nicole Goble, which hopefully will be coming mm-hmm. out pretty soon that I'm very excited about. Um, obviously, anybody who writes about horror, October is a very busy month for them. I've got a lot of things coming out. Um, my recently published reviews, you know, I've got a piece on Carnival of Souls that I'm really proud of through Ghouls Magazine. Um, just reviewed Shelf Life, the lost Paul Bartell film which was amazing. Um, And a lot of things coming out through film cred and daily grindhouse and possibly a new byline soon um, on some of my favorite horror movies. So I'm very excited about it. Excellent. Excellent. And where can they find both of you on the socials as they call the kids call them (laughs) nowadays? Uh, I am on Twitter under porcelain seven two and I am on Instagram under Gina Does Things. That's G E N A Does Things. And I am on Twitter and Instagram as We Who Walk Here. Excellent. Thank you both so much for joining us. This has been, it's a pleasure to speak with both of you. And I know I've guested on Kill by Kill, and it's so much fun talking to you and Patrick, Gina. And I love that show so much Thank and what you, you bring to the Thank table. You. Another show that blends horror and comedy. So so well so and jessica it's always a pleasure to speak so yes. please come back we'd love to have you on again and jessica i'm very excited for what you and nicole are kicking uh, are putting together i am looking forward to adding that to my list of shows that i have to listen to every thank week. you so, so much so for our listeners um very quickly i'm going to say we hope you've enjoyed this episode I actually am not sure of the next movie that we're doing yet. Uh, Lindsay and I are going to do another one-off movie for September. Um, I will say, if you have a moment, please take a minute, rate, review, and subscribe to our show. 
leave us a few lines in your review. Five-star ratings go a long way to helping new listeners discover our show and grow what we do. Um, We're going to take a brief minute, and then I'm going to be back on my lonesome to tell you what we are cooking up for the month of October because we have some really cool plans. Otherwise, have a great week and beware the moon. Okay, listeners, so here is what is going on for the next month or so. In two weeks, we'll be back with another one-off non-franchise horror movie. Then in October, we are going to go to a weekly schedule for the month. We're going to do something a little bit different. They're going to be more kind of shoot-the-shit style episodes where we're going to have a different topic each month since spooky season tends to be the time that everyone... Uh, Even your non-horror-loving friends come out of the woodwork and ask, hey, what should we throw on this month? So we have, and I I don't know about you, I always get flummoxed when that question comes up. Um, I just, my mind goes completely blank. So we're going to have these themed episodes where we discuss a few different things. One of them will be horror comics. Like If you're looking for a different way to engage with horror right now, uh, a lot of you know Lindsay writes uh, and reviews comic books, loves the comic genre, book genre, um, and she is going to be leading the discussion on a number of the current great, and it is really a great time for horror comics. She's going to lead the way on that. Also, like what horror video game? That's another boom right now with like Resident Evil remakes making a huge comeback in the new Resident Evil Village. And then just like a ton of great horror video games. So we're going to be having a great discussion on that as well. Um, we're going to explore what are some of the under the radar horror movie titles. You know, if you've watched you know, John Carpenter's Halloween or Trick or Treat um, for the seven millionth time, and you're like, what else can we throw on that we haven't watched in a long time? We're going to have a little discussion on um, maybe some underseen uh, seasonal classics that you should look at this fall. Lastly, uh, since Lindsay is doing a lot of festival coverage, uh, and I will be out in Telluride hosting the horror show, and I've done some, um, basically helped with some programming in some other places as well, we are going to just have a show where the two of us kick back for an hour and talk about some of the better festival movies that we've had the chance to uh, take a look at this fall uh, as a way to say, hey, this is what should be on your radar. So should be a very fun month and of course uh dropping halloween day it'll be our third annual mike and ada discuss a horror movie together a little bonus episode for how all hallows eve or halloween this year uh, ada and i are going to cover pg cycle gorman together we've been talking about doing that for a while and we're going to finally get that recorded and drop that for y'all on Halloween. So should be a really fun month. We, I think you're going to really dig what we bring to the table. We hope you enjoyed this show. Hope you enjoyed it enough to become a patron of the show. Uh, as a reminder, like podcasting takes a hell of a lot of time to prepare, do research or search for, edit and put together. When you become a patron of the show, you allow us the opportunity to get all the research materials we need uh, and invest the time and energy in the proper equipment. Um, and we reward you for being a patron of our show. 
every tier gets you some bonus content, whether that be a full-length bonus episode or as you go up the tiers, some added benefits like our staff picks, like what we're watching or listening to or reading that we think you'll really check out, as well as some other cool bonus features as well. We're in a little bit of a, a what would you call maybe a pledge drive right now. Once we get to $150 a month in patrons, we're going to add uh, another benefit for y'all, which is going to be little micro reviews, 10 to 15 minute reviews of current horror movies uh, that we think you would really dig and want to check out. So what we're asking you to do, like we're going to unlock that when we get to 150 bucks a month. We are about two thirds of the way there right now. If you want to become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash the pod and the oops, sorry. Go to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum. Really easy to sign up from there. All right, everyone, you've heard enough of me. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Have a great couple weeks. And if you're listening to this show while you're on the move, make sure to stick to the roads and stay off the moors. Bye.